The business secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, has said there is absolutely no question that the lights will go out this winter. Hmm. The fact we're even having this debate in 2021, if you think about it, is truly and utterly astonishing. But it's the result of, frankly, an idiotic series of policy failures. Wind energy was going to be the great salvation for all of us. And everybody agreed, everybody, oh, absolutely, Labour, the Liberal Democrats, uh, the Conservatives, the SNP, everybody said wind was the future. One or two of us have been sceptical about this for many, many years, and we've learned, of course, that if you over-rely on wind, well, there's a problem, because when the wind doesn't blow, you have to have significant backup from other sources. And even when it does blow, at times, it produces energy in a rush, uh, and you get more than you need in the short term and effectively have to shut off some of the wind turbines. But just to add to that, a uh, government which did, over a decade ago, have a plan for the regeneration of much of our nuclear industry has, in fact, let most of that slip by the wayside. Coal generation in this country, which was of obviously a huge part of our energy sources for decades, uh, that's gone completely. So we rely very much on gas, and not only is the price going through the roof, but our genius government, oh yes, they decided there was no need to have gas storage at all. No, far better to be dependent on Europe for gas and on Europe for 10% of our electricity. You would almost think that those that put together our energy policy and our commitment to net zero, you'd almost think they were all Remainers, wouldn't you? Because they, they left us in a position where we had to be dependent upon Europe. Now, we're not the only country facing this. California in the USA has had a series of power blackouts over the course of the last few years. But Governor Newsom is acting on this now, and they've started to fire up, once again, diesel generators. Germany... Well, they're not going to allow the lights to go out. And whatever their commitments may be at the G7 to combating global warming, no, 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 no. The Germans will make sure their factories still stay open. So think about this. Germany's coal-fired power stations this year, and for the last few years, they burn ten times the amount of coal that we burn in this country. In Sweden, they have just opened up two oil-fired power stations. Um, we, of course, go on burning a huge amount of trees that get shipped across the Atlantic from North America and are burnt in the Drax plant uh, in Yorkshire, which supposedly is green energy and yet emits more CO2 than almost any other comparable source of its side. So we face a crisis. Other countries have been worried about this too. The prospect of the lights going out, well, it was bad enough in 1974, although I have to say... Doing homework by candlelight was quite fun and a very good excuse for not doing much of it. But if the lights were to go out today in a digitised and computerised world, it would be nothing short of a disaster. So as you can see from that little talk-in, other countries around the world are taking action to make sure they can't find themselves in this position. What is the UK government doing? Nothing. I mean, literally, absolutely nothing but staying on with the same set of policies. Well, let's debate. Are the lights going to go out? Is that alarmist or is it something we really need to think about? And joining me to have this debate is Benny Pizer, head of policy for Net Zero, which is a new organisation which has come out of the Global Warming Policy Foundation. And 
Honorary Research Fellow from Imperial College, Richard Black. Gentlemen, good evening and thank you for joining us here in this debate. Good evening, Nigel. Richard, let's start with you. As I say, the fact we're even debating the possibility of the lights going out and quite a few estimates that I've seen from across the board say that we'll be down to sort of excess capacity of about 4%, which could mean, you know, one major disaster, such as uh, the recent fire we had with an with Euro interconnected with Europe, that if this was to happen in February at a time when a big anticyclone was sitting over the United Kingdom with frost and fog and, 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 and no wind, uh, that the lights could go out. So firstly, Richard, let me ask you, do you agree with me that it's astonishing that we're even having this debate and how do you view the prospects of the lights going out? I would be very surprised if we see the lights go out, but I think we are undoubtedly in for a winter of much higher energy bills than Britain's had for quite a long time. But the root cause of this is really all related into the international gas market. You know, gas is an internationally traded commodity and uh, companies, whether they're private companies or whether they're state-owned companies like, you know, Gazprom, they basically sell it for whatever price they can get at. And, and that's why we're in this position I mean, you referred to the closure of the gas storage facility four yeah. years ago, which was operated by an arm of Centrica. They wanted to close it because they didn't see it was economically viable. The government went along with that. Um, and, you know, the, the, the fact is, you know, the UK does have lower gas storage than most other European countries. Yeah, that's right. But I mean, there's also the point here. And of course, you're right. You know, the market price for commodities is the market price. But in terms of surety of supply... Uh, wouldn't it just make sense to produce more of our own natural gas, firstly from the North Sea and secondly from the northwest of England? Well, no, it, I think it works like that. And if you sort of advocate having state-owned companies so that the gas is sort of owned by Britain, then that makes sense. But otherwise, it doesn't. And we see proof of this. So a couple of weeks ago, as this was all starting to um, to take off and the gas prices was already you know, fairly escalated. The UK saw its biggest ever exports of gas produced from the UK North Sea to the EU. Why? Because demand was high. The companies could get more by selling it over there than they could by keeping it in Britain. You know, and um, the, the, the thing is, I mean, there's a lot of support I know around in certain of the newspapers at the moment for, for fracking and so on. The reality is that the volumes of gas you could produce by fracking would be so small that they could not affect the global price. And also fracked gas would be owned by whichever company takes it out of the ground. And again, they'd sell it for wherever they wanted to sell it. Yeah, to I, get, I get that. I get that. But here we are not producing our own natural gas, um, not producing many manufactured products that we're used to, patting ourselves on the back for reducing CO2 emissions. when all we've done is actually export that to other countries. Well, the exporting of emissions, I don't think it's really happened by, via energy policy. It's really happened because, you know, globalisation is a, is a thing that tied up with labour practices and labour prices and all this kind of thing. And that's why, you know, China is manufacturing job, you know, goods that used to be manufactured in Britain. Of course, that takes away uh, the emissions uh, as, as well. But um, I think, I think the, 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 there's a couple of, we need to differentiate here between the short term problem that we have here, which is going to unfold on a timescale of months, and then the future direction of UK energy policy, because nothing that we could do right now, whether it's increasing fracking, new commitments to nuclear, more renewables, whatever it was, nothing is going to affect the winter that we're going to go through. 
No, and just finally, if I may ask you, Richard, the, you know, the French, if they wanted to, and, and, and let's face it, we, we are at loggerheads uh, with France over mm. sausages into Northern Ireland and fishing rights and, and the AUKUS deal and many things, but literally we've left ourselves in a position where the French could turn the lights out in this country if they chose to. Isn't that madness? And, don't, and shouldn't we be aiming for some degree of self-sufficiency? I think the thing is that electricity, when, you, when, you're, when, you're, when you're near another landmass, such as we are to Europe or Japan is to Korea or something like this, you absolutely can trade electricity. And in a sense, why wouldn't you do that? We trade food, we trade clothes, we trade yeah. vehicles, we trade all kinds of things. Why wouldn't you actually trade electricity? It, it is a system that can actually benefit everybody because, you know, in, in the winter when there's higher demand, we can import from Europe. In the summer, we can sell, you know, electricity, from wind and solar back to the EU, which is going to happen more and more and more. And a country like Norway, for example, which has a massive amount of pumped storage hydro can actually become a sort of battery then for other bits of Europe, including Europe. So it does actually make sense on a long-term basis. In normal market conditions and normal politics, what you say is logical and right. I just fear we leave ourselves vulnerable. But I thank you for coming on and giving your point of view. And, Benny Pizer, you heard what Richard Black had to say. Uh, you know, he's very much of the view that we don't face um, a real threat this winter. Um, how do you feel about this? Well, that's perhaps the only point I would agree. I don't think we face a serious uh, threat of blackout. There is a risk, but the government will throw any money at it and in all likelihood uh, will have to rely on our remaining uh, coal-fired power plants to keep the lights on because that's what's currently happening. Uh, coal-fire is very popular, it's cheap, and it is basically... Um, relying or we are relying on on coal to keep the lights on but apart from that m i disagree with most of what richard said these are the kind of official green myths that i think this winter will go out of the window um particularly the 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 irony that we're sitting on one of the biggest shale basins in the world yeah this, this, a gold this, treasure this is up in the northwest isn't in it? the northwest yeah and we're not using it. Um, there's enough natural gas for about 50 years, perhaps even more at current gas prices. And um, the government just two days ago uh, refused an application for natural gas drilling in the North Sea. So it's complete and utter madness. Yeah. And the real risk we face isn't so much blackout. The real risk is that a lot of businesses will go under because they will no longer... Uh, be able to afford the rising energy price. We already see energy-intensive industries begging for handouts. And, of course, if they get handouts, uh, the rest of the industry will say, well, we can't cope with these energy prices, never mind consumers who are being clubbed with, with taxes on their gas bills. And, and, Benny, you know, there's nothing the government can do about the world market price of gas. We understand that. We get That's, that. There is no world market price. Let me tell you... Well, there's a European no, market price, isn't Well, there? it's a regional one. In the US, the gas price yeah. is a sixth of what it is here. So here we pay six times more than in the US. So it's not a... Gas but that's, shortage. But, but, that's it's a because of, political... but, but that's because of green levies and VAT and many other things that go on bills. And because Europe has banned <coughs> the 
exploration and extraction of shale gas. The U.S. is swimming in cheap natural gas because they are fracking. They are using their resources. And Europe, because of the environmental movement, we or the governments have banned fracking throughout Europe. There are big shale basins. There's no lack of natural gas. There is a political decision not to use it. Yeah, no, I understand that. And finally, Benny, um, out of 10, how would you rate the chances of the light going out this winter? As I said, I don't think there is a serious risk because the government will throw everything at it. There is, there is enough yeah. capacity. The real risk, at least for the short term, is not lights going out, companies going under yeah. and people struggling to keep their homes warm as the, as the price goes through the roof. Thank you very much indeed, Benny Pizer, for joining us here. You. Well, you've heard both sides of that argument. Um, now, I have to say, we've been talking on this show about what I believe is a looming health crisis and indeed a kind of a beginning of a loss of confidence, I think, in some ways. I had a friend of mine at lunchtime today I spoke to briefly on the phone, very briefly, uh, whose grandson uh, was ill. The grandson is ill anyway, generally, but soaring temperature. They were deeply concerned about him. They phoned the local GP surgery, but, of course, they're completely and utterly wasting their time because GPs don't visit houses anymore, at least hardly at all. So they had to call an ambulance, which didn't strike me necessarily as being the best use of resources. And all this comes on a day when we learn that in Germany... There are five doctors for every thousand people. In France, there are three doctors for every thousand people. In the Netherlands, there are four doctors for every thousand people. And in this country, well, it's one doctor for every 2,000 people. And we now hear that many GPs, uh, despite earning good six-figure money, many of them are now down to working a three-day week. And when it comes to getting back to face-to-face -face appointments, many of our GPs seem to be happy with online consultations. And there is a debate to be had here because I think general practitioners have been some of the most respected people in society. I've never heard people. Oh, they might be negative about an individual GP, but in, in, in general, people have felt they're doing a very, very good job, an important part of the community, and now questions are being asked. They really are. Well, joining me now to discuss this is a GP and former medical director for North East London, Dr Ken Aswani. Ken, good evening and welcome to GB News. Good evening. Do you understand the point that I'm making, that GPs have always had, uh, you know, huge regard from their communities, but people are really... Ken, they're genuinely now asking questions. They're basically saying GPs want to get paid but don't want to work. So, so, so I understand the um, point, point you're making. Um, I think that um, one of the big things that sort of changed, and this, the, these changes were taking place um, long before the pandemic in terms of different ways of working, so whether it's sort of um, electronic consultations, telephone consultations, and where needed, of course, patients are seen face to face, that change was happening. All the COVID pandemic is now it's accelerated that. Um, and now I think, you know, obviously, you know, if a patient wants help, they, they, they are given the help and response. But the response is according to what the, what the problem is and also the convenience of the patient. 
the patients often don't want to take the whole you know half day off if their problem can be solved on phone or via email. Um, but I think the shift from say moving more into a remote way of working or a mixed way of working, um, you know, I think wow. sort of you know obviously people <laughs> notice that change. That's one of the things that's happened. Well, it might suit GPs. I mean, I fully understand that. You know, work from home, do consultations, uh, cut it down to a three-day week, still get six-figure money. I can understand it from the GP's perspective. But, you know, the Alzheimer's Society, for example, say there have been 50,000 misdiagnoses, and they put that down to a lack of face-to-face consultations. Can you... I mean, can you look us in the eye and tell us that as, as a GP you can diagnose somebody with early-stage Alzheimer's on Zoom? So, so, so what happens is that, so, for example, you know, if I'm, if I'm in the surgery, it could be anything up to 50% of the patients you bring in. So anyone with lumps or possible Alzheimer's or, you know, it's, it needs a bit more of a thorough, complicated assessment, they would have to be brought in. Um, this is not about sort of, you know, doing things that are not sort of um, possible to do. But it's about giving the options, um, you know, for the GP, but also the patient. And, and clearly, you know, you know, if if patients got busy lives and they want their problems sorted out, and they want to be phoned on their mobile phone, their prescription sent directly to the chemist. Yeah. But it's appropriate to do that. But any time a okay. patient needs to be seen, that they are brought into the surgery. Well, well, okay. I do get the point that there are people leading busy lives who want as you say, a new prescription or whatever. I get that. I understand that. But you and I both know in parts of the country, people are having to wait weeks for a face-to-face consultation. Now, I'm not blaming you for the rapidly rising population. That's not your fault. But we have found ourselves with roughly the same number of general practitioners and a much bigger population. So the first debate we've just had is about working practices, and we can agree perhaps to disagree slightly on that. But we need to get more doctors ahead of population, don't we? Well, I mean, that, 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 that's true. Certainly, um, you know, there are more doctors being trained, but it, it takes 10 years to sort of train as a GP. Um, and, and the key aspects of it, the, f- the first element of it is that it's not just the number of the population that's increased. And partly post-COVID is that there are lots of sort of conditions that you know, patients are now seeking for, for help. And it's appropriate that they do so. So if their queries, you know, query cancers or diabetes that needs managing or complexity or other sort of problems, so there's much more uh, people seeking help. And some surgeries have seen a 30, 40 percent increase in demand. Uh, and that does have to be met. But obviously, there's a, a certain amount of increase in waiting. Uh, and obviously, with the hospital waiting list to sort of manage it in that way. Um, but at the end of the day, one, one talks about the GP. But also now we have nurses, we have physiotherapists, um, we have pharmacists, all in, in their own sort of appropriate way can manage these patients. And now we think of a multi-skilled workforce, which I think moving forward is the right way, because to be honest, we'll never have enough GPs for GPs to do everything. But it's just a sort of transition, sort of a more, you know, I'd say a more modern way of working. And that's where we're moving to. But looking at the numbers in Germany, there are 10 times the number of GPs per head of population. We're not in a good place here, are we? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, as I say, certain countries have developed differently, and certainly in Europe, um, in, in a sense, they've 
sort of have a large number of patients that see just the doctor. The doctor actually undertakes um, most of the work. But if you take, for example, yeah, my, I, I, my I, I, practice, yeah, you know, we, we have the variety of professionals. And to be honest, I think that, you know, nurses do get skilled in what they do, as do pharmacists. And if you've got, say, an injury or musculoskeletal problem, you probably like, you know, it's better to see a specialised physio than the GP. So we all have our skills. And we've moved much faster in that direction. And, and I think that's appropriate. It's almost the quality of care we receive at the end of the day, not being over-focused on the GP. It's not, you know, the GP's got enough work to do, but appropriate person with appropriate skills, I think. And do you understand, Ken, finally, why you know, people are asking questions now about GPs? Is this just because of the pandemic? Um, or is there perhaps a bit of a disconnect going on now between GPs and their patients? I, I think I mean, I understand these sort of anxieties that brought up, but I think in terms of communication, so for example, if, if somebody phones a surgery and they're directed to the right professional, and also that it is appropriate, there are different ways of contacting GP and receiving help. Um, you know, before we had paper, now we've got emails and these remote ways working. Yeah. We shouldn't just have one and not the other, but, but yes, I think one, one aspect of it, give the right care but also keep the satisfaction and confidence together is with what you're saying. And I think it's appropriate that we focus on that. And we need to articulate that more, I think. Uh, yeah, I think something needs to be done. Ken Aswani, thank you very much indeed for joining us here on GB News. In a moment, in a moment, Prince Charles speaking out about climate protesters. That's my What the Farage moment of today. But I need to t- we're just going to have to take a break first because it's all too much. Could the lights go out this winter? It's astonishing that we're even debating this. But what I say is really interesting is other countries are taking real fast action to prevent that from happening, and we appear to be doing absolutely nothing, and that frustrates me hugely. Ian responds to me at GB Views by saying, I agree with Nigel, produce more of our own gas. We've scrapped gasometers everywhere and can't store gas anymore. Yep, that's at a town level, but of course the real storage problem is we used to have that big facility on the North Sea and it's pretty much gone. Barry emails in to say, just wait until we're all forced to drive electric cars. We certainly don't have the power generated or the grid capacity to handle all of this extra load unless we either add nuclear power stations or go back to coal. And it's a very powerful point. You know, you know here we are, here we are with our dreamy cabinet Uh, telling us that we're all going to be driving electric cars. They just haven't thought about... Maybe they think, maybe Boris Johnson thinks that by turning us into the Saudi Arabia of wind, which he's absolutely quoted for saying, maybe he thinks that's how all the cars are going to be powered. Well, when the wind blows, it'll be okay. Graham on GB Views says, why, oh, why, as an island, are we not looking at wave energy on our shores? Graham, I have asked this question for 20 years, uh, because unlike wind... Unlike solar, uh, we can predict the next high tide time in Dover, not just today, but in 100 years' time, to the minute, and know what its strength is. And why underwater turbines have not yet been developed that worked, I don't know the answer to, but I would very much like to. Now, let's go to Jersey. Let's go to one of the Channel Islands, and you know what's been happening there. Uh, Big rows, big French fishing rows more than once this year, and a direct threat from a French minister that they could cut off 
the electricity supply. Well, joining us is our Home Affairs and Security Editor, Mark White, who is there in Jersey this evening. Good evening, Mark. Good evening, Nigel. I mean, you were talking uh, in your uh, talking points there about the issue around the uh, cutting off of power supplies. Well, it is a very real threat, if we're to believe the French, to the people of Jersey, 108,000 islanders who are facing the prospect of having their electricity supplies cut off. Now, we should say that the European minister uh, was slightly rowing back on this suggestion at the weekend, saying that it wouldn't be a complete shutdown of power to the island, but it might be a reduced uh, power at certain points or partial cuts. Whatever, the islanders here see it as bully boy tactics by the French who are trying to get more licences for their vessels to fish in the waters around Jersey. Now, it all really hinges around the post-Brexit fishing deal that was done, uh, the rules of which are if you can prove that you fished in the waters around Jersey uh, for 11 days in the past three years, then you will be granted a licence. Now, more than 100 vessels from France, it seems, have been able to prove, at least partially prove, that they've been in these waters for some of that time. Another 75 have not, and they are not being granted licences at this stage, and that's what the French are so irate about. But also, listen, the Jersey fishermen are very upset too. They say that more than 100 French fishermen fishing vessels in these waters is more than ever fished in the waters before. They find it difficult really to, to stay afloat, as it were, in terms of a business at the best of times, and they really are fearful that some of their uh, boats will have to cease operations because it's just not uh, worth their while anymore. I was speaking a little earlier, Nigel, to Paul Bizek, who is the director of the Jersey Fishermen's Association, and he was pulling no punches. Take a listen to what he said. You know, we won't have an industry in five years because the French are just so greedy. They want all our waters, and we've never had more than 70 vessels before. And they're trying to get like another 140, a total of 140 to 200. You think they're just chancing their arm? Yeah, they are. They're going to cry like babies all the time. The French will cry to try and benefit themselves. They... Yeah, strong words there. But I have to say, uh, you know, I, he, he's right. If all these boats do get granted licences, it probably will be the end not just of the Jersey fishing industry, but of fish stocks in that part of the world. And we're seeing further east of the Channel, Mark, uh, since Brexit, since the Brexit deal, uh, stocks of many, many species decline. Um, I don't suppose, while you're there, that... Uh, are there migrants landing on Jersey as well, or are they just coming to Kent? They, they've not got uh, this far down as yet, Nigel, but you never know. Um, they may, it may be a tactic at some point uh, in the future. I think their concerns of the islanders here, at the moment anyway, is the issues around their power supplies and whether France does try to carry out in this election period that France is into at the moment these threats, because, of course, that plays very well to a French audience. Yeah, and, and do they really think that the power could be cut? Is that a real fear on the island? 
Well, I was speaking to the external relations minister today, Ian Gorst. He's hopeful it won't come to that. He says it's a wholly disproportionate threat from the French, but they're taking no chances. They have been in contact and in uh, meetings with uh, Jersey Electricity uh, to try to come up with contingencies should the power be cut. Now, there is uh, at Le Cote, the old power station, uh, an old oil-fired power station that they used time to, from time to time. They used it quite a bit uh, in years gone by when the interconnectors between Jersey and France were not as reliable as they are now. And that could be um, fired up to take over the power supply to the island for some time. But it, again, it just depends on how sustained this power cut is, if indeed the French do follow through on that threat. Yeah. Mark White, thank you very much indeed. Well, the wind has not been blowing, which is not only bad for wind energy and for gas usage, uh, but it's also, of course, making it very easy for migrants to cross the English Channel. I was down on a Kent beach on Saturday uh, of this weekend uh, and pretty remarkable uh, to see what was going on. Uh, the Dungeness lifeboat was called out six times within a space of 24 hours, and I've talked about the RNLI before um, and been attacked by the organisation's head office, but frankly, it's completely unsustainable to ask volunteers to give up that amount of their time when many of them, most of them, have got their own businesses to run. Uh, the scores on the doors, Friday, Saturday and Sunday, 1,500 people. 1,500 people have come across the English Channel, into the United Kingdom, uh, being processed through Dover, uh, nearly all, of course, getting their... nearly all getting their um, pizza, uh, which is ordered from Domino's. That's one of the things they get, it seems, on arrival. And there's no sign of any of this stopping whatsoever. And in the boatyard at Dover, there are now 739 boats uh, that have been impounded. Um, since the start of the year. Uh, sorry, 729, I got that wrong. 729 boats with others left adrift in the English Channel and posing a little bit of a hazard to other shipping. Uh, no sign of anything changing, despite all the words that we heard at the conference last week. Uh, what the Farage moment? Quasi Kwarteng. Well, quite extraordinary. Quasi Kwarteng has said, I can say that we've worked very effectively with the French government so far. It is a good collaborative relationship and we obviously want to improve upon that. What is he on about? He also said over the weekend he was engaging with the Treasury for help over industries affected with a spike in energy prices. And after those comments, a Treasury source said that Kwarteng had made things up. Well, Kwasi, you may have been a very, very good student at Oxford University. I'm just not quite sure you're right to be in charge of British business. And my final What the Farage moment. It's my old friend, Prince Charles. And it's hard to believe, but this is what he said. I totally understand the frustration. The difficulty is how do you direct that frustration in a way that is more constructive rather than destructive. And that he said about not just Extinction Rebellion... No, 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 no. But he actually said it about those insulate Britain that are blocking Britain's motorways. He understands why they feel the way they feel. And this comes after a series over the last few decades of Prince Charles increasingly 
giving us warnings that the North Pole would disappear in a few years' time, and it didn't. The catastrophe was about to be on, upon us, that he's a big fan of Greta Thunberg. Uh, Prince Charles, uh, the royal family, through the actions of one of your brothers and, indeed, one of your sons, uh, is not enjoying the kind of reputation that it needs to enjoy at this moment in time. And whilst your mother is imperious, the family is being dragged down. So a piece of advice, uh, Charles, stay out, please, of active politics. Maybe just go quiet for a bit. Wouldn't that be nice? In a moment, I'll be talking pints with comedian, but a comedian with a serious side, Dominic Frisbee. It's that time of the day. Yep, it really is. The GB News pub is opened. And joining me on Talking Pints is Dominic Frisby. Dominic, welcome. Thank you very much for your Talking Cheers. Pints. Very good to see you. You too. Mm. First today, terrific. Am I allowed to identify what it is on air? No, no, okay. no, no, no. Not until they sponsor us. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Dominic. I did the voiceover for all their corporate videos just last, just last week. Oh, did you? Yeah. They're, they're a growing brand. They're a growing brand. A mysterious and, growing brand. And they come from the west of England. They come they're from Cornwall. Very west. And they were tiny not long ago. And actually, what's happened with beer, British beer, just shows you that when you free a market up, when you deregulate... I mean, I hadn't imagined the conversation would start like this, but here it is. Yeah. But, but actually, pubs were freed up in many ways to start to buy other guest beers, etc., and it's seen a massive growth in breweries everywhere, hasn't it? It's just fantastic. And I just remember moaning about how bad beer was in the 90s, all those bland lagers that tasted of absolutely yeah. nothing. And you had to sort of really dig around to find some sort of rare real ale that was nice. And then if you started demanding some nice real ale, you were branded some oddball. And then suddenly we had this craft beer revolution and yes, just phenomenal. so much delicious beer out there. Yeah, and local breweries. And so. that's the, what's yeah, so great yeah, about it. Yeah. It's real localist movement. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. Well, the voiceover, you very much started in doing, you know, voiceovers and these kind of things. And, and you kind of graduated more and more into comedy. Yeah which you've now been doing for quite a long time, 25 years or so. Something like that, off and on, yeah. You know, and you do your songs, and, and, and uh, it was my great, um, great honour as a Brexiteer to have you on the stage in Parliament Square the moment we left the European Union. That was one of the most fantastic nights in my life, singing, sing, singing a theme tune that probably we can't say on air no, now. It's too and early. you were being interviewed on Sky News. Yes, I was. Well, all this invective yeah. was being Yes, I was live on Sky and Dominic's on the stage in the background <laughs> singing with some quite adult words. But what I, do, what I do enjoy is I think comedians need to laugh at themselves. I did see that as a voiceover man, you were once asked to compare... A football game for Fulham FC, but sacked after one outing. That was, uh, yeah, that was a long what time ago. What did you do? Well, I, I wasn't entirely to blame, but the, um, what had happened is Fulham, Fulham Football Club, were determined to make their ground, Craven Cottage, more intimidating for opposition fans to visit, which kind of sounds fair enough in principle until you consider that the, the Fulham is people, full of people called Charlie and Rue who have never intimidated anyone in their lives. <laughs> and uh, they wanted to get this somebody in to sort of G up the crowd, and they auditioned all these various people, and I... I um, uh, for the, the pre-season friendlies, and the pre-season friendly that I got was Fulham against Glasgow Rangers. And there was 
the sight of 17,000 Glaswegians descending on sleepy Fulham with red hair and kilts and tooth decay and was all the rest of it, screaming these songs. And the Fulham fans, there's only about 2,000 of them, they dwarfed, they just dwarfed the Fulham fans. And I remember turning to all the Glaswegians and saying, come on, let's have a cheer for all the Rangers fans. And they were like, I'm near cheering that English. (laughs) (laughs) So they just went totally quiet. And the powers of being at Fulham were like, this guy's great. He can get the opposition fans to shut up. So I got the gig. And then this was the first game back. And I'll never forget, it was Fulham against Bolton when Sam Allardyce was the manager of Bolton. And I was stood there in between the two dugouts. And Al Fyhead... Um, was the chairman of yeah, yeah. And he had insisted on going on and doing this rap before the beginning of the game, buoyed up by the success he'd had on the Ali G show. And um, the DJ played the wrong backing track. So Al Fire was left standing there going, this is the wrong music, this is the wrong music. And, he, you know, they love him at Fulham, but he totally died on his backside. And anyone involved... With, with the PR team or the, the uh, DJ, everyone got the sack. Right. So, what, <laughs> so that's why I lost Good the job. Good story, but <laughs> Dominic, you know, you've done some very, very funny stuff. You've done some very cutting stuff. I know your most recent, your most recent little video that's out there on YouTube um, talks about ugly people and how they're a very discriminated against group, but no-one speaks up for them. And you're very much on the front line of the war on woke, the war against cancel culture. How difficult is it being a comedian now? Because what you simply can't say or words that are unacceptable. I mean, do you find yourself getting cancelled from events? Yeah, well, I, um, all the time. And comedies is divided in the sort of the culture war as, as everywhere else is. Yeah, I bet it is. And so you go to some clubs and they're a bit more... You're able to say stuff and other clubs, you know, they just won't... You know, that... The famous Brexit song that I did probably got me, lost me maybe half the life work that I once had because people who are on the other side of the Brexit argument are like, I'm not having him, my, him in my club. So that goes on. That's fine. But the, I'll give you an example of something that happened two weeks ago. Just a little new material night where near where I live in, in Broccoli in south-east London. Mm-hmm. And it's essential in a new material night more than anywhere else that you have freedom of expression because you haven't yet found the right way of wording something yet. Mm -hmm. And so, inevitably, you're going to make mistakes. You're not going to get it absolutely right. And if you don't have freedom of expression there, then you've got it nowhere. This is your sort of tester. This is, yeah, comedians all go and do new material all the time. You you find that those really tight, perfect routines that you see people doing on the telly, you know, they've spent many, many hours, if not weeks, if not years, getting those routines tight. You know, new material nights. Anyway, so I was doing this new material night. I was doing that routine about how ugly people aren't properly represented, they're the most discriminated against group in the media and so on. And, and I did the line, it's not the greatest line in the world, but this was the line I did, which was that nobody's campaigning on behalf of ugly people, nobody's going around tearing down statue, statues of Adonis, crying out, ugly lives matter. Right, and that was do, and and I think it's not the funniest joke in the world, but I'm making a very important point about this group because it doesn't matter what race, what age, what sex. But you're seeing whether this is funny, and and I'm seeing whether it's funny. Yeah, and then somebody wrote into the club afterwards. I didn't feel safe. Uh, This man was making fun of Black Lives Matter. 
He was uh, punching down and all this stuff, which I, I really wasn't in that routine. But it's got to the point now where people just hear the words. They don't even hear the argument anywhere. They just hear trigger words. And then the guy, the poor guy books the club. He just wants a quiet life where people can come to his club and try new material. And he makes, you know, whatever he makes, 50 quid a week or something. He's suddenly got a, like a mini storm on his hands. And, and that's just an example of what's going on. So... There'll be somebody in the audience, and I imagine this happened to you all the time oh, at the BBC. Oh, I've been through it all. Yeah. 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 And, you know, people are like, why, why are they giving Nigel Farage a platform? That's right. Yeah. And, and that same argument is going on at every level. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a Can form... Can we fight back and win this culture war? Well, at the level of comedy, we have to win it by being funnier than the other side. <laughs> and, you know, you, you won your battles in the culture the war because si- you won the argument. Well, because there was a silent majority there. Yeah. And, and I think the silent majority felt they were being talked down to, they were being patronised, frankly being lied to. And mm. when they got the chance to speak... They spoke. On the 23rd of 17 June. 17 million of them. 70.4 <laughs> million of them. No, Anyone who doesn't get what Dominic's talking about, do YouTube. Uh, do, do, do Google, have a look at YouTube and you'll see the song. Provided you're over a certain, provided you're about fifteen or over, it's yeah. fine and it's totally acceptable. Uh, but it's meant to be funny, and it is actually very, very funny. But Dominic, you know, you've done all of that. You're a comedian. I love some of your stuff. It's very, very funny. Uh, you're good at it. You're fighting those other battles. What people don't know about you is there is a much more serious Dominic Frisbee. And we first met many, many years ago at a gold conference. At a gold conference. So, you know, you're very, very into. Uh, money, you've been writing articles for Newsweek, for all sorts of organisations. And you wrote a book, How Tax Shaped Our Past and Will Change Our Future. I know you feel very strongly about tax, and you, you made the argument to me before that, you know, taxes or the perception of unfair taxes has caused many wars over the years. Oh, no. Uh, it, it's the, it, my theory is that tax has shaped the entire course of civilization. And every war in history was funded by some kind of tax, either either during or after the event. You plunder and then you tax. Every revolution was a rising up against some kind of injustice perpetrated by the economic injustice perpetrated by the tax system. Every conquest, it's 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 the sheriff, it's the sheriff of Nottingham. It's it's everything. You know the the idea of the sense of duty to the greater collective, which is what taxes are will have existed in the hunter-gatherer societies that predated civilization. And, you know, the famous quote, there's two inevitabilities, death and taxes. And the guy who said that, by the way, it's attributed to Benjamin Franklin, Mm. but it was actually a comedian. Was it? It's a line from a farce in the early 18th century. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm pleased to hear that. But you also, you write about cryptocurrency, you write about financial markets, you... And without, you know, breaking any... Financial Conduct Authority rules. Give us your take on the investment world today. Well, it's very difficult because so much money is being printed. Like every day, the Bank of England's printing another 1.4, 1.5 billion, whatever it is. And the large majority of that money is making its way into financial assets. And so cash, you know, if you think in the the 1800s, in the 19th century, things got cheaper over the course of the century. So stuff was one price at the beginning of the century. Mm. It was cheaper by the end of the century because we got better at making stuff and money held its value. Today we live in a world where everything is rising in price. Houses, 
Um, even wages and are And is that because up. there's more money chasing yeah. the same number of goods? It, precisely it's that. Simple as that. It's as simple as that. And, you know, by holding cash, you are guaranteeing that that... And it's a war on... on people say it's a war on savers. It's a war on people who rely on salaries because their salaries are effectively losing 5 or 10% of their purchasing power every year. Ah, but Boris Johnson told us last week that wages are going up, so everything's fine. Hey, Boris Johnson is a big spender. As long as he's got money to spend, that's what he wants. That's all he cares about, and he'll get that money however it is, whether it's zero interest rates... So those that have been frugal and saved money and kept it in the bank, I mean, they're just... The world, does, the world rewards debtors. Once upon a time, <clears throat> it rewarded savers. doesn't now. All that sort of Dickensian, you know, logic of, of saving more than you spend. Yeah. Now get into as much debt as you possibly can, as cheaply as you possibly can, and buy assets. That's, the, that's been the trade. And if inflation goes up... Then we're in the big so trouble. Uh, but, is, but it is going up. Yeah. Is it going to go on going up? It's, of course it is. <laughs> Every, it's, it's, we're, you know, the Bank of England can raise rates, or central banks around the world can raise rates, and immediately they, the, the whole bubble goes pssss. Mm. So they've got to keep the bubble going. They can't afford to raise oh. rates. They're damned if they do and damned if they don't. It's a really, it really a tricky no, no, situation. I, I, I get that. Absolutely, mm. it's a mess. Dominic, we're out of lockdown. Uh, Thursday nights in London, I mean, you can't move. The bars are overflowing and people are back in the theatre and there's a little bit more happiness about the place. Yeah. There. Yeah, I mean, the tubes are crowded, the tube coming over. It wasn't packed, but it was, you know, and it's, it, see, it feels like life has gone back to normal. Yeah. Nobody's, like, occasionally there's all this sort of, do you shake hands with somebody, do you touch yeah. fists, do you do the elbows, a bit of that. But life, yeah, it does feel like life is going back to normal. Thank goodness. Yeah, no, it's been a long, long time. And are we going to start becoming happier again? I hope so. We need friendship, we need social contact if we're going to be happy. I don't think... There are some people who enjoyed the lockdown, yeah. but ultimately the most depressed people are the people... You need contact with other people. Do you know, I was reading a piece in the papers today about the city, about the London Metal Exchange, where I work. Yeah. And they talked about the new culture that's come in, you know, and they said, of course, some don't agree, Nigel Farage, you know, belongs to the old culture. And I read the article and I thought, yeah, do you know what? We used to laugh. The camaraderie. Fun. The camaraderie. Yes, yes. In the city, you know, all yeah. those traders. But, but all through life, yeah. people would take the mickey, would have fun, perhaps say things to each other that the other person didn't find offensive and was said in jest, and these things are all banned and all... You've got to... That's the other thing. The, 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 the argument in this cancel culture is, A, straw-manning people, but, B, quoting people out of context. Mm. And... You're like, no, I didn't mean that. I was saying that to him in this circumstance when the moral guidelines were this and the line was there. You're quoting me as though I'm saying this and this when the line's here. I'm sorry, yeah. but that quoting people out of context, which is possible because everything is recorded, yeah. it's a damaging... It's a, it's a fighting tool. But you're going to go on fighting the good fight. I, I will. And can I plug a show I'm doing? Am I allowed to do that? Is he allowed to do that, producer? Yeah, of course he is. So, oh, November the 8th. I couldn't stop you anyway, it's live. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't got a pause button. Well, I'm button. trying to be polite. We haven't got Nigel. a pause I'm button. trying to be polite. Go on. Go, November go the 8th, um, uh, Comedy Unleashed at the Backyard in Bethnal Green. Comedy Unleashed, great comedy club. November the 8th, I'm doing uh, a, sh a show with a huge band called Before I'm Deleted. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's, it's a night of great songs. And well, we got, it's a I, great jazz band we got. Before I'm deleted. He never stops, this bloke. 
Dominic, thank you. That was Dominic Frisby putting the big plug in for his next performance. It is now time for Barrage the Farage, the part of the show where you send in your questions, which I do not get previous sight of. So, sharp intake of breath, and here goes. Philip emails in and says, if you were offered a seat in the House of Lords, would you take it? They did try very hard in 2016 after the referendum. Uh, there was a, it made very clear I could go to the House of Lords in 2016. And I thought about it, and I thought, you know what? Just imagine if they messed this up and I'm stuck in the House of Lords and I won't better come back and fight them. So I didn't pursue it, didn't go on with it, uh, and thank goodness, because I was able to come back with the Brexit Party and give them the kicking that they deserved and needed. Uh, right now, the prospects of me being offered a seat in the House of Lords are pretty close to zero, and I suspect I would find the appointees of Blair and Cameron and the others even more unpalatable than those I had to sit within the European Parliament. So I'm quite happy without it. Thank you very much indeed. Glyn asks, would you consider starting a petition to scrap HS2? Well, look, I think the answer to many things is scrap HS2. I mean, why on earth are we spending what is going to become 150 billion quid uh, just so that a few rich businessmen can get faster back and forth from Manchester Piccadilly into the heart of London and all these arguments, it'll regenerate Manchester. No, it won't. It'll actually bring more businesses to locate in London. So I'm dead against it. It should be scrapped. Chris emails in and asks, Nigel, if you were to choose one government department to run, what would it be and why? Well, I could take Pretty Patel's job, I suppose, and take over the channel. Uh, and I would find a solution to it, but I promise you, it would lead to international condemnation. There would be UN resolutions uh, saying how ghastly we were, just as there were with Tony Abbott, the Australian Prime Minister in 2012, when he turned the boats around, towed them back to Indonesia, and the world went, how awful. How could an Australian PM behave like this? But you know what? The boats stopped coming. Time for one more quickly. Robert asks on GB Views, do we live in a world without borders? Only in the imagination of the Corbynistas and the extreme left. Good fences make good neighbours. The same applies to national borders. People want to live in their own countries with their own identity. And that's what Brexit was all about. And it's why we've begun, I think, on some levels, to win the fight back. A lot more to do.